Hi and welcome to the CU20 podcast. We are a group of young adults living in Montreal who meet together to talk about what it means to be a Christian. The podcast today is a sermon from our series on the basic beliefs of Christianity. Hope you enjoy. So I'm going to begin with a story that some of you have heard, a lot of you have heard, but it's like the best story I have, so I'm not ever going to stop telling it. And it's a story about a sound, a sound that I heard once that I can never forget. And I'm sure some of you have sounds that you've heard that you know you just have to sort of briefly think back and you can almost hear it again. Like you can feel yourself in that presence. One of those is like when my daughter laughed for the first time, I can still kind of hear that little goofy laugh that she laughed that first time and I can picture the scene in my head. But this isn't about that cute thing. This is about a scary thing. So this is about the time when I uh, stumbled across a lion in the wild with no protection. And so I was fishing with my father and a few other people. We came back uh, from our fishing expedition for the day and there was someone who had stayed behind at the campsite that we had set up. Uh, And whilst he was there by himself, he had gone around collecting firewood and he said, hey, while I was out collecting firewood, I noticed there was this like this dead animal like nearby, like like a deer. And we're like, we want to go see a dead animal. And in my head, I was thinking like skeleton. I don't know why. And so we kind of trundle off together. Like I got my flip-flops on still. Like we are very unprepared for any kind of adventure. Uh, So we're walking around and he's like, oh, it's kind of over here. It's kind of over there. Now he was referring to like a freshly killed animal. Uh, And I didn't know that. And so we're kind of looking for it. And if you can imagine this, this scenery, it's kind of like very it's river land, so it's kind of sandy ground, and there's kind of these big tall bushes that are sort of about twice the size of a, p- a person, kind of scattered around, and then between them is just sort of sandy, sandy ground and some tufts of grass. And we're kind of looking around from here to there, from here to there, can't really find it, and then all of a sudden, out of a bush that's probably from like me to Jan Eric away, um, to the side, to my left-hand side, there's this roar that just this comes out of nowhere, this massive just kind of roar that comes and I you know that when they say you can feel it in your chest I could literally feel the vibrations boom in my chest and I spin around and there's three lions tucked in the bush sitting and crouching on top of this dead like antelope staring at us and there's about six of us together and we just ran in different directions everything you're not supposed to do uh, and I had this moment of thought, because there was like a 12-year-old kid with us, and I was like 15, 16 at the time, so I was significantly bigger than him. And I thought like, oh man, if this lion's going to kill anyone, it's going to kill the kid. So I'm thinking like, where the heck is this kid? Uh, and I see the kid kind of like take off to the side, so I'm like, right, I'm going to run behind the kid, so I'm going to put myself between uh, the kid and the lion. So I start running after this kid, and then I think like, I'm the next biggest thing here. So I'm going to run really fast, and so I'm trying to get this kid to get a move on. This guy just starts screaming, like like a high-pitched scream uh, to the left of me again. I thought like, he's dead. But then he just comes like, like screaming past me. I'm like, oh, he's alive. And then I'm thinking like, where the heck's my dad? And my dad's like way in the distance, just like running as fast as he can away. And I'm like, good dad. <laughs> really cool. And so we get back to the campsite, everyone's freaked out. And I said to my dad, like, what the heck? Like, he just left me. And he's like, I kept thinking to myself, how am I going to explain to your mom that I let you die? <laughs> I was like, it's terrible. 
But we all like hopped in the Jeep and drove, drove to go see what was up. And sure enough, there were these three like big lionesses that would like crouch on top of this thing. But I'll never forget that sound, that like really like earth shaking, like, I don't know, just soul rattling sound of that lion roaring. And the reason I want to tell that story is because it, it connects to this idea of something that would just be so uh, shattering and, and kind of shaking to hear and could have been completely unforgettable. And it, and it just comes down to these two words that's connected uh, sort of to this idea that's going on in the book of Mark. And it's Mark chapter 15, verse 33 to 38, and it's, it's to do with the death of Jesus. It's the literal point where Jesus dies. And so we're going to read it together, Mark 15, from 33 to 38. And you'll see why. I want to read this in just a moment. It says this, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until about three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Let me pray together. God, we... We can't even begin to imagine the, the true gravity and scope of what we see on this page. But we ask, God, that you help us to just get an inkling of it tonight, to understand, to help us dive into this passage and, and feel the weight of it so that we might better grasp the magnitude of our salvation, the, the gravity of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the part I really want to look at is verse 37, where it says, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And that word loud cry is, it's this cry of agony, this cry of terror. It's kind of like the word shriek, like with a shriek, Jesus breathed his last. It's this awful, ugly word, and it, and it describes this awful, ugly scene, and it's one in which you know, even the centurion who watches this is sort of shook to his very core. And I would imagine and, and kind of bet that he would have never forgotten that noise for the rest of his life. Same way, I'll never forget that sound of a lion. I, I'm, I'm betting this man, those who were around to hear it too, would have never forgot the sound of this cry that Jesus cries as he breathes his last, burned into the memory of all who heard it. And it fits in with a lot of what the Bible describes uh, as it describes the death of Jesus. It's this ugly affair. And it's one of those things that kind of assures you that the gospel is not a made-up tale because it's such an ugly scene. It's such a horrific death. There's nothing noble about it. There's nothing 
dignified at all about it. It's humiliating. It's, it's terrible. It's hard to watch. And, and the fact that it's described in these terms gives us the sense, well, it kind of must be true because nobody would make this up, especially if you're trying to start people to follow this man. This isn't the way that a noble person dies. This isn't the way that somebody that you want to follow will meet their deaths. Sort of, they should meet it with a head held high, with a sense of dignity and poise. And that's not what we see in Jesus at all. And it's such an ugly thing. And it's, it's kind of human nature to kind of try to look away from ugliness and look away from death. And I think it's for that reason that the Gospels really slow down their pace when it comes to the final week of Jesus. The final act of Jesus and then the final act when he's on the cross, it slows it right down. And I love what, it, what um, John Starr talks about. He says 40% of Matthew, 60% of Mark, 33% of Luke, and 50% of John are dedicated to the final week of Jesus, of his ministry. Uh, you know, his final time that he visits Jerusalem and then what he does up to the point of his death. It's as almost as if all the writers are slowing down intentionally saying, don't miss this. You need to look at this. You need to pay attention to what's going on here. And obviously the question is, what do they want us to see? Why are they doing this? Why are they making us see this? And the question beyond that is because obviously the Christian church has embraced this. I mean, we've chosen the cross as the symbol of our faith. It's choosing the method of execution and torture of our Savior to be the symbol that we all gather around. It's, it's strange. It's kind of grotesque in a way. And I mean, honestly, we're kind of desensitized to it now. It's become quite sanitized. But if you, the first 400 years of Christianity, they didn't have the cross as the central imagery because it was so hard to look at, because they still did crucifixions. And so anyone who had witnessed a crucifixion would have said, this is I don't want to be reminded of this. It's too awful. We look at it. We, we, we kind of keep coming back to it again and again and again. And without understanding the meaning behind it, this will make absolutely no sense. I kind of understand the, the first century's kind of confusion about it, where in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, Paul speaking says this, We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross is a stumbling block and foolishness to, to many in this world, but to those who understand its meaning, those who hear its call, this is the power of God. This is the wisdom of God. This is the pivotal moment in which our whole faith rests. We fixate upon it because it has power in it, the power to solve our greatest problem, the power to finally give us the freedom that we crave. And its importance cannot be overstated. We've been looking at the depth of our problem for the last two weeks. And now we're coming, turning the page to look at our solution. And the first thing we see, your glaring cross. And so this is the solution to this sin problem that we carry. It is absolutely crucial to our faith and it's important that we don't misunderstand it. John Stott says Christians believe that the cross is the pivotal event in history. Little wonder that our tiny minds cannot fully take it in. I feel like that very often. I feel so 
ill-equipped to be able to express to you the magnitude of the cross because I can barely grasp it myself and sometimes I get it and it slips out again. It's just too much to hold on to. But the simplest way I could explain it to you is to say this, the cross is the only way that God could wipe away sin without wiping away you. That's it. I mean, when people look at the state of this world and say, why doesn't God do something about it? Well, the fact of the matter is God has done something about it. And the reason God doesn't do more about it is because if he was to wipe away the sin that we all lament so much, he would have to wipe away us in the process. And God isn't willing to do that. So the cross is the way that, that God has chosen to deal with sin in a way that preserves us. On the cross, Jesus is taking the curse that we deserve upon himself. It says in Isaiah 53, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. It goes on to speak about this, this crushing that he received, this, this, this brokenness that he carried, and it continues to say again and again, all the way, you should read Isaiah 53. It's an amazing chapter. It's all about, he did it for us, he did it for us. And he keeps talking about this laying on of iniquity and sin and transgression that Jesus did on our behalf. And all of these terms are referring to this problem that we have. And when Jesus Christ goes to the cross, he doesn't go for any other reason except to embrace this, to be a sacrifice on our behalf. To try to understand the death of Jesus Christ by any other term would not do his own His own ideas of why he was doing this any sense of justice he willingly walks into this when you look at the gospels he chooses this path he allows this to happen to him and he's not doing it as if he is some you know political revolutionary who's who's going to death because he's upset the king he's not going to it because he's some zealous religious bigot uh, sorry not bigot a blasphemer who's uh, who's now just taken that step too far and now he's in trouble He could have gotten out of it in many different times and he continues to walk straight into it because he knows why he's going there. He's going there as an atonement for our sin, to wash away the guilt, the curse that is upon us. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, which means none of us, being falling short of the glory of God means none of us will be welcome into God's presence. And this is because none of us have responded to the way, the way to, sorry, none of us have responded to God the way that we should have. Forget your Sunday school definition of sin for a moment, you know, do bad things equal sin. It's far deeper than that. None of us have treated God the way that we, he should have been treated. None of us have given him the respect that he deserves, the gratitude that he deserves, the obedience that he deserves. None of us have. All of us have instead uh, gone about our own way, ignoring him disrespecting him, taking credit that's for him to, onto ourselves, turning our attention to creatures rather than the creator, and in the same time abusing the world and using it as we see fit, breaking his creation all around us, damaging people that have been made in his image. This is what we've done again and again and again, and the consequence that we bear is that none of us deserve to be in his presence at all. I appreciate the fact that Christianity seems to me to be the only religion that takes sin seriously. It takes the human condition seriously. You're telling me that if there is a God, 
And God, by very definition, is the highest, most perfect being, the most powerful, the most wise, intelligent, onwards and onwards, being that could possibly exist. And that a being like that would be happy with me just because I kind of tried. I don't see that as taking the human condition seriously. I don't see that as taking God seriously enough. And yet Christianity does. It says, no, you can't live up to this. You don't deserve to be in my presence at all. And yet, I will do something on your behalf for you. The only option is that we would be eternally separate from him, eternally, both in this life and the next, enslaved to self, just bound to futility. And yet, he steps in. Don't think that your best could possibly be good enough. John Stott says in that chapter that we read, we must not miss what this implies. It means that no religious observance or good behavior on our part could ever earn forgiveness. Yet a great many people accept the caricature of Christianity which claims that we can. They see religion as a system of human merit. That does not take the death of Jesus Christ seriously. To see the death of Jesus Christ and say, well, that's nice. I guess I ought to live you know, the best life I can. That is not an adequate response. An adequate response is to fall down and say, he's done everything for me. And to embrace that as a gift. This is the biggest problem that we have that Jesus solves. Jesus' death is the punishment that we deserve. When we see the darkness come over him at the, on the cross in that passage we read, we understand, we should understand, because we, when we read the Bible, we see that darkness always refers to the judgment of God. That darkness comes upon him, and, and that judgment of God, the wrath of God, the curse of God is upon him. And as we see him in agony and terror and pain and descending down into death, we should see that that is what we deserve and that he bore it. And all the time that he bore it, the hope of you being with him was on his mind. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was his joy? Was his joy to return to the Father? No. He'd already been there. He was there before he was incarnate. The reason he becomes human, the reason he lives and dies, for you, the joy set before him was that you would be with him in the presence of his Father too. It was because God loves you, and yet your sin was so severe, so serious, that it required the greatest cost. And it was a cost that Jesus Christ pays for the joy of your presence with him and the joy of, that you will experience in being with him as well. That is why he does what he does. When we look to the cross, we see the greatness of the love of Christ, that even descending into the depth of hell, he cries out in love for us. The depth of his sacrifice, the willingness he has to bear the curse upon himself, and he shouts out in other, in other explanations of the gospel and other uh, witnesses of the gospel, it says, it is finished. Jesus says, it is finished. And that is what we cling to. And now, because of him, the debt is paid. It is finished. We are no longer a prisoner, no longer a slave. And now, instead of fearing the day where we meet the judge, we long for the day that we meet the Father. For that is who he is to us now. Everything changes when we embrace the message, this message. 
If you think you're a Christian today and you say, look, I don't see much of a difference between my life before and my life now, I want to softly encourage you to rethink what do you believe about the gospel. Because when you embrace this idea that now, top to bottom, inside and out, my life has been bought by Christ, that my biggest, my, my problem with sin has been taken away, I've been reconciled with God, so that now both in this life and the next I can live it with His presence with me. That should change you. It is stunningly beautiful. I mean, just think about it for a moment. If, if I was... In, Okay, I've used this metaphor a lot, but I'll use it again. If I was to bring out a statue, but the statue was covered by a blanket so you couldn't see what it is, and I was to say, this statue is a perfect representation of you, Jess, of who you really are. I mean, just the absolute crystal perfect detail of who you are, really are on the inside. That's exactly what the statue is. And I was about to pull back the blanket for everyone to see who you are on the inside. And, if, and it wasn't Jess, but it was you. How would you feel about that moment? I know for me, I would be apprehensive. I'd be nervous, I'd be a bit fearful. What are they gonna see? What is it gonna be like? Because I know what I am on the inside. And then I'd pull, I'd pull it back and what you see before you is just this stunningly beautiful thing. Just absolutely awe-inspiringly wonderful. Well, that's what the gospel does. Because what it means is that when we, when we hear, comprehend, and then believe in the gospel, what happens is that the way that God sees us is that we are covered by Christ. His perfect sacrifice washes away our guilt and shame. His righteousness comes and covers us as a veil. And now, we are seen as perfect. We're seen as spotless and righteous and whole. That is who you are. This is your identity. Who you are is who God says you are. Nothing could be more true of you than that. He is ultimate reality, after all. And that is the reason why, by accepting this identity, by embracing this identity, it is powerful enough to, to wash away any other identity which might be true of you, maybe, maybe not, of its power, that those things are robbed of all their power to label you. You're no longer anything, you know, wrong this, wrong that, broken, ashamed. No, you are the one who Christ died for. You're his joy. You're, you are loved. You are accepted. This must change you. If this is, if this is, new to you tonight, if you haven't ever heard this before, perhaps you've never believed it before, you can believe it tonight. You can start walking in this newness tonight. You begin by praying to God to ask Him to receive that grace. Say, I want it. I want that grace that you offer to me. I want to be covered by Jesus' perfect sacrifice. And then pray to Him, I want to turn my life towards you. Teach me to live out what it means to follow you. Teach me to live day by day. Begin by that. Begin with that prayer to God and then continue to listen to Him. Continue to, to grow in your knowledge of what He has done. And if you are a Christian here today and you've been a Christian for who knows how long, this shouldn't be boring to you. 
And if it is, I feel sorry for you. Because there's so much wonder to it still. Even if you've heard this message a thousand times, it still ought to be humbling. It still ought to be beautiful. It still ought to melt our hearts. We must allow it to do that. We must allow it to work on our hearts. Because without that melting of our hearts, the Christian life is impossible. To be the people we are called to be, it's impossible without that. Because we're left too stiff, too dry, too inflexible without it. And I brought out Plato to illustrate my point. I shouldn't be surprised that I found dried Plato in the Sunday school supplies today. But I wanted to illustrate this idea. So if this is your heart, this is dry Plato, by the way. If this is your heart, without the, the softening and, and sort of warming presence of the gospel upon you, you may try to change your heart, but there's only two outcomes that are possible. Either you'll kind of try to press on it and you can kind of make a bit of a scratch on the outside, but it's a superficial impression. It's not going to really change you. And so outwardly, you might have the superficiality of seeming like a law-abiding citizen and, and seeming like a, a fairly decent person. But inwardly, your heart will still struggle with pride. You will struggle with, with coldness, with a judgmental attitude, with a little love, with selfishness. Or, I mean, you can really press it, and the more you press it, the more you'll just kind of break apart. It's not going to make any kind of big change because if you... If you press it too hard, it just breaks into a bunch of pieces. And that happens when we will try our best to live whatever righteous life we're trying to live and, and in our shame continue to fail and fail and fail. And it piles up upon us and we know we don't live up to it. We know we ought to be doing better than we are. And that sense of failure and sin fills us with despair, spills us with discouragement and it breaks our heart. We abandon, we give up trying. But when, <clears throat> when you are softened by the gospel, when you are warmed by the gospel, then you become something flexible, something able to move and to morph and to change and to become a new shape all of a sudden. And that's what we're called to be. See, I made a heart, sort of. <laughs> We are called to be softened by the cross. We're called to embrace it inwardly. And when we do, we realize there's no pride. There's no, there's no room for pride anymore because we have been saved. We've been rescued. As John Stott opens the chapter with, Christianity is a rescue religion. And if you've been rescued, there's no place for pride. Only gratitude will suffice. Only gratitude makes sense and joy, not pride. But also there's no shame because how many of your sins were still in the future when Jesus died? All of them. So no matter how many times you fail, no matter how much you continue to fall short, your every failure is covered by his deep love. You are still fully accepted in him. So there's no room for shame anymore either. And no matter how long you've been a Christian, this still has the power to move you. And I can prove that to you because today it moved me. I was coming into work this morning and I hadn't done any quiet time yet. And I read an email that someone sent me today that 
both broke my heart and absolutely offended me at the same time. And I was fuming and, and kind of in a turmoil as I was coming in. And, and you know, as you do, you begin to kind of formulate your response full of how dare yous and if only you knew this kind of stuff, you know, that's kind of, you want to fight back. And I remember the George Mueller quote in that, in that moment where George Mueller says, our highest priority every day is to make sure our hearts are happy in the Lord. And he goes on to say, because you don't know what the day is going to ask of you. And you need to be sure that no matter what, mo- what is asked of you, you're going to be, have to be ready in that moment to meet the needs with the joy of the Lord. And I remembered, I haven't done that. I haven't made my heart happy in the Lord today. And so I came into the office and I sat down and I thought, I've got to do my quiet time before I do anything else. And I, and I turned my Bible to Isaiah 41, verse 9 and 10. And it says this, it says, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. And honestly, to me, as I read that and I began to pray over it, it was enough. My heart was softened. My, my, my being became at peace once again. And I saw the power of the gospel taking hold in my life again, reminding me and, and filling me with how I ought to be as a Christian and what I get the privilege of being as a Christian. Those who are called and strengthened and upheld and chosen by God. What a glorious privilege. And it is the cross that reminds us. It's the cross that's the the very foundation of a claim like that. This is why the cross is our symbol. This is why the cross is our obsession. This is why, because it's our power. Here is the power we need for this life and the next. My prayer is that it may continue to ring in your ears, may it continue to shake your soul and melt your heart with the love that Christ has for you now, tomorrow, and for the rest of time. Why don't we pray? God, as we look to you once again now, and we go into small groups now to think and reflect, may you continue to wash penetrate and clean our hearts so we may be more and more in the image of your son and we may be strengthened and molded and shaped by his power we love you god not nearly as much as we should but we do love you we thank you for all that you have done we thank you jesus for what you've done amen Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can find us on the website peoplesmontreal.org. There you'll find information about where and when we meet, as well as a catalogue of past sermons and other resources. Hope to see you soon.